Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode three of the Tri-State College Basketball Report. My name's Brian DiNovellis, and oh, what could have been for the Rutgers Scarlet Knights. They were less than five minutes from their first trip to the Sweet 16 in 42 years. Up nine, 4.55 to play, and Rutgers fans admit it. You thought you were going to the Sweet 16. Heck, I thought you were going to the Sweet 16. And who knows what could have happened from there because you would have played Syracuse, a team you'd already beaten handily without Geo Baker. The Cuse didn't scare you. Yeah, they're shooting the lights out. They can't keep shooting this way in the tournament, can they? And how about the other two teams in the region, Loyola and Oregon State? You couldn't have asked for a better road to the Final Four. But instead of Rutgers being on that road, it's Houston. Thanks to a 14-2 run over the final 455. Look, you can't fault their effort, right? Rutgers always gives great effort. But on Sunday night, you have to admit, Houston just had a little better effort and much better execution when it mattered most. All right, with that said, it's time to get started on this show. And with me today is a very special guest. He's a fixture on WFAN's morning show, Boomer and Geo. He's the play-by-play voice of the Rutgers Scarlet Knights men's basketball program, Jerry Recco. Jerry, thanks for coming on. You got What's up, man? How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, hey, it's been a wild ride. Let's face it, Jerry, right? I mean, I know it stings, but when you look at where Rutgers was and where they could have been, I want to talk about those, those final frantic minutes. Do you think in some way the players got a little tight, the coaches, maybe maybe Pykele coached a little tight? Uh, no, I don't, actually. I think quite the opposite. I think, you know, you reference up nine. I'll, I'll do you one better. Up eight with the ball with, I think, four, 15, I believe. And you get, you know, an alley-oop attempt from Geo Baker to Miles Johnson, something they have executed countless times over the last couple of years. And Miles just missed it. And if he puts it down, the lead goes back to 10. Um, Houston side out under the basket, taking more time off the clock, and they really haven't cut into a lead that Rutgers had the entire second half. And instead, he misses the dunk. Houston comes down and within 10 seconds hit a three, and the game goes from what you thought was going to be 10 to five, and the game changed. In that very moment, the game changed. Um, you know, execution-wise, I don't think it was tight. I think Houston played out of their minds, um, especially on the offensive glass over the last four minutes. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a cool game sometimes. I've seen it for 14, 15 years now between Columbia and Rutgers, and sometimes you start missing shots at the wrong time, ball bounces off your foot at the wrong time, and it's just the way it goes. They had a shot. Ron Harper Jr. had a shot at three um, to tie, and it wasn't to be. They, they did have shots, Jerry. You're right. And I, and I know that when they went to that 1-4, I felt like they were taking time off and not running their offensive set. Peichel said later that that's the set that he wanted. Did you think that they kind of went into that stall a little earlier? You know, you can make that argument. I do think, though, what they did all night, and I understand um, I've been told on TV that Brennan Hayward was killing them for that as well. But if you look at the way the game was played, they took the shot clock down deep often. Um, The idea was to stop Houston from running and getting easy baskets because that's where they kill you. And while I get not, you know, loving the one four, um, you know, in the isolation type of offense, I think if you watch this team in big spots, 
they've actually executed that. Um, the problem is when it doesn't get executed and you end up losing the game, you're open for criticism and second-guessing. So I get it. Um, I didn't have that much of an issue with it. I just thought they had two bad turnovers at the wrong time. And again, they, they you know, didn't convert on a couple of what should have been easy buckets. And if you get the dunk, you get the putback. I'm not asking for you to make half-court shots. I'm talking about a dunk and a putback. Um, it's a different ending to that game. I really believe that. And, and that's very fair. It is fair. And sometimes, no matter how we dissect games, right, it all comes down to making shots. Houston made their yeah. shots. Rutgers didn't. Grimes misses two free throws, gets the rebound, and then hits a three. I mean, you can't draw that up any better, right? Dejan Giroux is, is virtually playing on one hip. Have you seen... I'm sure you've seen many heroic performances, but where does that one rank? You knew his hip was bothering him. He's, he's basically playing on one hip. And when he came back on the court, it clearly gave Houston a lift down the stretch, just being there. Well, you know, it's interesting because if you look at his numbers throughout the course of the year, he's really a pass-first type of player. And I think his season high was 18 or 19. And, I, you know, going into that game, my thought was, boy, if he could just give him 20 minutes, and, you know, run the team, I thought that would have been something to applaud. And instead, he gave you more than that. And when the team couldn't score, he took the game in his own hands, and he ends up going for 16 or 17 points. And really, I thought was the difference in the game. So it was heroic, perhaps. That's certainly a good word. But he was definitely banged up, and he gave them 120% of what he had. Did anyone mention this in the press conference? Could Peichel, could the team have gotten him off a of pick-and-roll and maybe gotten him in a one-on-one -on -one situation where you attack a player like that? Um, I don't think it was. Man, it was a very bizarre press conference um, afterwards because there were a couple of other things going on. So um, it wasn't 100% focused on the game, and I do not believe that question was asked. So for me to speculate, that's all that would be. My guess would be they ran their offense, and for 36 minutes, Rutgers did everything and then some of what they planned to do and what the game plan was. Um, could that have helped? Perhaps. But I have not seen an answer or a question like that since. Okay, fair enough. You mentioned offensive rebounding. That was huge, right? 16 offensive rebounds for Houston, and that and one at the end of the game when Giroux missed the shot, Rebound put back. That's what put Houston up for good. And you just can't teach stuff like that, Jerry. No, and that comes back to what I just said about 36 minutes of perfect execution. I believe yeah. in the first half, Houston only had two or three offensive rebounds. The last eight minutes, I believe, of the game, I think they had nine, uh, which tells you that Houston went into full attack mode because they saw their season about to come to an end. The play you're talking about, that and one, not only, I think it was Mark that had the putback yes, on the Jerome miss. Exactly. Not only does he make it, but Geo Baker's hand is on the ball and he pushes through and just powers the ball through Geo. Um, and so, man, a lot had to go right for Houston down the stretch. It did. And, you know, you congratulate them, tip your cap, and unfortunately, watch them move on. You're right. You're right. And, and if you're in this tournament long enough, obviously, uh, every team, every program has gone through moments like this. We're talking with Rutgers play-by-play -play announcer Jerry Recco on the Tri-State College Basketball Report. Jerry, this is your fifth year now of doing Rutgers play-by-play? -play? Yes, five years for Rutgers after 11 at Columbia, I believe it was. How much fun has this been 
the last two years. We're going to put Rutgers in the NCAA tournament last year. We're going to, you know, assume that they would have gotten a bid and just put these last two years in perspective and where Rutgers came from when you first started broadcasting in 2016. Well, you're right. They would have gone last year. Last year they were 20. They won 20 games. I think they went 20 and 11, I believe, and they were 11 and 9 in conference, and they were really playing good ball, had some really good wins. So you're right. This would have been back to back years for sure. But um, to put it in perspective, awesome. I mean, there's not another way to put it. When I got the job, Steve Peichel was taking over, and I had certainly known enough about him because while at Columbia, we played Stony Brook at least once a year, and on a couple of different years, they played them twice. Um, so I had seen Stony Brook, I, I had to have been 12, 13 times in my 11 years doing that. So I knew Steve Peichel knew what he was doing. I watched him build that program. Uh, when he got the job, that team was be kind, not great. Sure. Boy, he brought in a defensive mindset that allowed them to compete. They played well non-conference. Once the Big Ten schedule started, it was on. And you could see the difference and the gap in talent level. And slowly and slowly and slowly, they got better. And, you know, they, they shocked a couple of people by winning a Big Ten tournament game that year. Um, the following year, they certainly did some different things. I believe that was the year they got their first Big Ten road win, which was at Penn State, if I'm not mistaken. Then the following year, it was multiple Big Ten uh, road wins and, and, you know, adding to their total wins for the conference. And then you go to last year, and it was supposed to be the year for sure. Um, Gio was a junior, and you were looking at, you know, what they had. And, uh, boy, they played really good basketball. And you bring it into this year, and, you know, they had a lot of pressure on them. Because even though you and I know they were a tournament team last year, officially they're not, because it never happened. Correct. And so they still had, they had unfinished business. And there were times this year that they played great. They had times this year they weren't so good. Other times they were kind of in between. They battled injuries all year, like a lot of teams have. And ultimately they got that part done. Um, but watching it, I'll tell you this, it starts at the top. And, I, you know, the job to me that Pat Hobbs has done there is remarkable when you look at all of the sports, not just basketball. And then when you take it down to the next level, Steve Peichel, his staff, Brian, is unbelievable. That's right. Nicest group of men you ever want to be around, number one. And B, they're just so good at what they do um, that it's fun to be around them. And, and they recruit good kids. And, you know, it's a good group to be around. They make you feel like you're part of the team, even though you're really uh, kind of afar, you know, calling the games. and You're with them, but you're not really. Um, they invite you to everything. It's just, it's been, you know, it's funny. When I was offered the job, I had to think because I had such a good situation at Columbia. <laughs> the people there were unreal. And I said, you know what, i got to do it at the Big Ten. It's Rutgers. I'm from Jersey. It'd be awesome. And I never thought it could be better than Columbia. And it has been because it's just, it's an unbelievable program. And the people there are off the charts outstanding. Where, where does it go from here, Jerry? Right? Because now Rutgers fans want more of this. But let's face it, you know, in a year of we don't know if some of these players are going to come back. Seniors can come back. But Jacob Young has said he's moving on to the next level. Will Gio come back? Miles Johnson, you know, where does this all fall into place? What have you heard? And what are Peichel's goals? What does he have to do to keep this sustained success? I think keep doing what he's doing. Um, keep running a good, clean, honest, hardworking program. Keep recruiting good kids that want to buy into it. Uh, keep developing players. You know, Miles Johnson, when he got there, 
um, was a nice player. Miles Johnson, if he leaves, leaves as a dominant defensive player, and that's that's really something. And he's a you know it's a different game now. College basketball it's really not a back to the basket type of game anymore, right. like the NBA really isn't. It's about jump shots and three pointers. But Miles is a throwback. He can play with his back to the basket. His footwork has gotten so good. Um, I hope he's back. Uh, I don't know that anybody knows yet. And to be honest with you, it wasn't until mid-season that I wasn't even—I didn't even realize that it was a possibility that he wasn't coming back. I know right. for sure he was back next year. So I don't know about Miles, uh, but I do hope he's back. If he is, huge boom for this program if he comes back for one more year. For Geo, I don't know. I'd love to see him back because I feel like he deserves the roar of the crowd for an entire season. Um, and same for Miles, uh, and, and to play at the rack again uh, in front of packed houses with, with higher expectations. But let's be honest, if they don't come back, you know, you still have a great core of players there. You still have Ron Harper Jr. there. You still have Paul Mulcahy there. You've got Cliff Omori, or, or Moria, excuse me, right. who will have another year of development. Um, this Jaden Jones, who got some time this year as a freshman, was able to get in and enroll early, is one of the sweetest shooters I have ever seen in practice. I mean, he looks like a player. He's tall, he's lanky, he's fast, and he's got a gorgeous shot. Um, you know, Montez Mathis should be back. I think this team will be good. I don't think anything changes. Um, the league is hard, and I know they haven't fared well in the, in the NCAA tournament, but the league is really, really good. Uh, but I believe, I really believe in Steve Michael, and I believe in his coaching staff, and I think every year this team has taken another step and I would expect them to take another step forward again next year. I, I agree wholeheartedly, Jerry. And and Steve Peichel was the right guy at the right time. He is the right guy at the right time. And and uh, Rutgers, Rutgers finally got it right. Good for them. Now listen, Jer- Jerry, before I let you go, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your former broadcast partner, one-time Rutgers assistant, Joe Boylan. He died unexpectedly right uh, before tip-off on, on Sunday's game and after suffering a stroke. Uh, Jerry, what would you like to say about him and, and how much of a shock was it to you? Yeah, it was a good punch. Um, Joe might be, um, you know, one of the top two or three nicest people I've ever met in my life. Um, you know, I've been doing games with him for the five years. He had some health issues through the season that seemed like they were totally worked out. Um, the last couple of games I did with him, was uh, a road trip. He went. He flew with us. We went to Minnesota for the final regular season game of the season. He was in as good a health that day as I had seen him all year. He had a lot of pep in his step, um, a lot of life in his voice. And then we did the Big Ten tournament games. We did them remotely because we weren't allowed to travel with the team. And when we walked out of you know the, the, the football stadium, SHI Stadium, it was you know we talked on the way out and walked to the car together, had a nice chat. He was in about as good as spirits and had as much energy as I've seen in the five years. Um, and so, you know, when when everything transpired, I found out on Thursday morning what happened on Wednesday night. I uh, thought he was getting better, um, you know, with communicating with his wife on Saturday. And so when word came down literally a half hour before the game to us Sunday night, it was quite shocking, as you can imagine. But all I'll say about Joe and, I mean, I could talk about him forever, is genuinely one of the nicest people I've ever met. He had friends, when I tell you, in every city that we went to, I mean, he had multiple friends from the college basketball world to just life. 
He was a great storyteller. People gravitated towards him. The players loved him. The coaching staff showed him the utmost respect. And um, it's just it's not going to be the same without him. Um, that's all I can say. I'll miss him dearly. Love the guy. And it's just a shame. I'm very sorry for your loss. Very sorry for the, the loss for the entire Rutgers community. Finally, do you have one best memory or do you have a story that will uh, that you'd like to share about, Joe? Boy, you know, so many. Um, you know, he was, I guess, you know, the best thing I can, I can tell you would be, and this is when I realized how deep his, his life in college basketball was. Like, I knew of him, and I was, when I got the job, I was certainly told him being the the assistant, the associate head coach at Rutgers on the Final Four team in the 70s. And I knew that he left, and he worked at Loyola for a while. I knew he came back, and his daughter graduated Rutgers. And I knew Rutgers was a huge part of his life. Um, but I'll, I'll never forget when we went to Michigan State our first year. And, you know, we go to shoot around with the team when we're on the road, and, you know, we get to watch. And me and him would always watch together. Well, we go to Michigan State sometime in, it was probably December, late December, early January, as it was the early part of the Big Ten schedule. And we walk in, and he kind of went in a different direction. I thought he went to the bathroom, <laughs> and he disappeared. And the practice ends, go on the bus, and then he, you know, comes and sits next to me. I'm like, what happened? Like, well, you didn't watch practice. You always watch practice. He goes, no, I had lunch with Tom Izzo. <laughs> you having lunch with Tom Izzo? He goes, oh yeah, me and Tom go back years and years and years and I'm just trying to catch up. I'm like, the man just had lunch with Tom Izzo. <laughs> wow. Like, really just incredible. And then, you know, you go to Indiana, he's got stories about Bob Knight. He's got stories about Dean Smith. And you're sitting there like, this guy is a college basketball gem. And he's just, he's a, he's a treasure. said, going to miss him dearly. Well said, Jerry. Well said. Hey, it's been, uh, it's been a blast. Having you on the Tri-State College Basketball Report, I want to thank you and, and appreciate all your time, your insight, and your stories. Brian, my pleasure. Thanks very much. All right, Jerry Recco, the voice of Rutgers University men's basketball. Thank you. That's the Rutgers Report. Now on to UConn. And the Huskies were no match for Maryland's sharpshooters. Now look, I don't know how much it would have mattered if UConn had won because Maryland in turn played a red-hot Alabama team that was, they couldn't miss from three, okay? They hit 16 threes in the game. So I don't know if UConn could have given Alabama a much better game than Maryland did. But getting back to UConn and Maryland, UConn didn't defend like the number one defensive team in the Big East. Maryland's guards, Eric Ayala, Aaron Wiggins, they torched the Huskies' defense Time and time again from three. Maryland shot, get this, 51% in the game, 50% from three. Of course, it was their best shooting performance of the season. So it didn't matter that UConn had 18 offensive rebounds in the first half. That is a redonkulous number. 18 offensive rebounds. Think about that. Houston had 16 offensive rebounds in a game against Rutgers. And UConn had 18 of them in the first half. But they couldn't make a layup. I think on one possession early in the game, they had four offensive rebounds and didn't score. 
How demoralizing can that be? Sucks the life out of you. And look, I know, I know it didn't help that Adama Sinogo was in foul trouble. We don't know if RJ Cole was 100% because I don't care what concussion protocol says. If you've ever had a concussion or know anyone with a concussion, he was less than a week removed from a concussion. He hit his, he hit his head pretty hard on that garden floor. He was bleeding. So I don't care what anyone says. I bet he wasn't 100%. Not a doctor. I didn't sleep at a Holiday Inn Express, okay? But I'm willing to bet that in a couple of weeks, he'll be more at 100% than he was for that game, okay? Doesn't mean he wasn't cleared to play because he was. But what I'm saying is that RJ Cole might not have been 100%. But as good as Maryland was offensively, UConn was bad, okay? They shot a season-low 32%. It's really amazing when you think about it. They only lost by nine, all right? And James Booknight. I'm not putting it all on James Booknight, please, okay? Because this is a team game. But when UConn won their national championship with Kemba Walker, when UConn won their national championship with Ryan Boltwright, they did it. Because their stars were the stars and their role players played bigger than they did in the regular season. It takes all of that. Book night was not book night. It was clear. His last three games, James Booknight shot 14 for 41. Two games in the Big East tournament, one in the NCAA tournament. I know he had elbow surgery. I know he missed eight games. James Booknight was beaten at the end of the year. If you don't think so, just look at his shooting performances. He was beaten. He was battered. He'll never admit it. Okay, that first game when he came back from the surgery, that first game against Villanova, man, I didn't know if he'd survive that game. He took a pounding in that game and landed on the elbow hard. All right, I, I just think that he was physically beaten this year. Now, is part of that the toll of playing in the Big East Conference versus the America Athletic Conference? Of course. Could it be his frame? All right, listen, he is a super freak of an athlete. We know that. But he's thin, okay? He could, he could put on an extra 10 pounds of muscle. It would certainly help him at the next level. And that's the question here. You look at every, every projection in the NBA draft, and Book Knight is a first-round pick. He is a consensus first-round pick on many draft boards. Is he ready for the NBA? Does he have the talent to play in the NBA? Absolutely. Look, I'm not a scout, but I know what I see. I wish he could stay another year, put on another 5 to 10 pounds of muscle, and really come back, and his stock would rise. I mean, he would be a first-team All-American candidate. But you don't know what's in a kid's heart. You don't know what's in his mind. You don't know his financial situation. You don't know what pressures he may face to go get paid. Plus, he could return another year and get injured, and then what? So it's a very personal decision. Look, I hope for UConn's sake, he pulls a Rip Hamilton. And at the last second... 
says, I'm coming back for another year, UConn fans. Let's do it, right? Things turned out pretty well for Rip Hamilton in the NBA. I'd say he had a nice NBA career, all right? A very good NBA career. And he stayed an extra year at UConn. Gun to my head, I think Book Knight's gone. I think he's going to the NBA, and I wouldn't blame him one bit. So let's assume that James Booknight doesn't come back. Where does UConn go from here? How do they build off their first NCAA tournament appearance in five years? I know one thing. If Booknight's not back, this is RJ Cole's team. This is Adama Sonogo's team. They are the face of UConn right now. They will be the leaders. They will be the stars. Maybe Tyler Polly returns. All right, there are some reports out there. He's weighing his option. I'd take him back if I'm Danny Hurley. Because remember, you can use this year as a freebie, right? Players are allowed to return next year if they're seniors, if they graduate, if they want to return, and if the coach wants them back. So I'd take him back. Who else? You need Andre Jackson to step up. I know he was injured this year. He showed some flashes. Man, did he have that dunk against Seton Hall that I, I think is going to be on, you know, college basketball plays of the year. But you need him to step up and play a full season and live up to his potential. You need Jalen Gaffney to step up. Add some shooters. UConn was not a good three-point shooting team this year. Adding a shooter, whether you do it through the transfer portal or there's another diamond in the rough out there, that's a must. Okay, that is a must. Know this though, UConn fans. UConn is more than capable of staying in the upper half of the Big East Conference. They have the tools. They have the resources. They have the backing. They have a great coach in Danny Hurley. I'm not saying they're going to compete for a national championship next year or every year like they did under Jim Calhoun. Can they get there? Yes. Are they on their way there in my opinion? Yes, but you need to recruit every single year like a blue blood. You want to be a blue blood. You want to be there every year. Villanova right now is the model in the Big East Conference, okay? Since UConn left, Villanova is the gold standard. They're in the Sweet 16 without Gillespie, without their best player, without their MVP. They still got to the Sweet 16. Villanova is the gold standard. Every year, Jay Wright brings in a great class. That's what Danny Hurley can do. Will he do it? Time will tell. Okay, before we say goodbye, I want to talk a little bit about Iona because this team gave Alabama a game, okay? They were down one point at the half, and you can't tell me that Alabama wasn't a little bit worried. You can't tell me those Tide fans... Those Crimson Tide fans weren't just a little bit worried. It was still anyone's game with 10 minutes to go. Now, Iona lost that game by 13, but it was much closer than that. Iona can play, and we know that Rick Pitino can coach. I mean, this guy's one of the greatest coaches ever. For my money, and I was born in 1970, and I've been watching college basketball, I remember... Bird versus Magic. I remember the 1979 college basketball championship game. Okay, I remember watching that game on TV. So I'm going to go from 1979 
until today. 42 years? So, in the last 42 years, my Mount Rushmore of college basketball coaches is Krzyzewski, Roy Williams, Jim Calhoun, and Rick Patino. Those are the four on my Mount Rushmore. Take your Dean Smith, your Jim Beheim, heck, take your John Calipari, your Bill Self, whoever you want to name. I'll take those four. And Rick Patino is that good. But at 68 years old, what does he want to do? What does Rick Patino have left to prove? He's saying all the right things. After the loss to Alabama at his press conference, he said, and I'm going to quote him here, I wanted no part of the so-called big time anymore. He said he's had enough of it. Okay, I'll take him at his word. He said, I just want to coach and teach young people how to become better basketball players. And then he continued, I wanted to take a smaller school like Providence, like Iona, and try to make it big. Hmm. What happens if Indiana comes calling? Marquette. What happens if a, a team from a, a Power 5 conference, right, comes calling with a pot of gold and all the alums and all the backers and the hoopla like he once had at Kentucky, like he once had at Louisville? What happens? Does he go for it or does he stay true to his word? I'd like to think that he stays true to his word. I'm going to take Rick Pitino for his word. And if he stays, he's 68. How much longer can he do this? Five, six, 10 years? Why not? Why not? All I can say is, look out, Mac. Look out, college basketball. If Rick Pitino stays at Iona and he doesn't run off to a Power 5 school, you could see Iona becoming the Loyola of the Northeast. A little Catholic school that can compete with the big boys on the big stage. Look, next year, they already have Seton Hall and BYU coming to play Iona at Madison Square Garden. They're already set up in a tournament that features Alabama and Kansas. If you are a college basketball player, if you are a parent of a college basketball player, and you're a tweener. Maybe you can go Ivy League. Maybe you can go Power 5, Big East, Atlantic 10. Or you can go play for a Hall of Fame coach at Iona, be a star, win the MAC, go to the NCAA tournament, and get Iona's first ever win in the NCAA tournament. How would that be? You are on the roster coached by Rick Pitino that gives Iona its first ever NCAA tournament victory. They're 0-14 now. It's going to happen. If Rick Pitino stays, they're going to multiple NCAA tournaments. They're going to get their first win. Could they be the Loyola of the Northeast? Could they go to the Sweet 16? Could they go to the Final Four? Think about that. The answer is obvious. It's yes. And all they will need for the icing on the cake, all they will need is to find the sister gene 
somewhere on that campus in New Rochelle. Sister Jean, if you're out there, come to Rick Patino, be a part of that program, be the face of that program, and watch Iona do miracles. And on that note, that's a wrap on episode three of the Tri-State College Basketball Report. My thanks to Jerry Recco, the great Rutgers play-by-play announcer, for his professional insight on the Scarlet Knights. It's always a blast talking college hoops in the Tri-State. My name is Brian DiNovellis. Thanks once again for listening to the Tri-State College Basketball Report. Remember, follow me on Twitter, at Brian Dino. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the hoops. We'll talk to you soon.